Welcome to AI Dialogues, a series by educational initiatives and organization working towards creating a world where children everywhere are learning with understanding. In this podcast, we speak to entrepreneurs, academicians, policy makers, and education leaders delving into the most urgent and important questions on solving for quality and equity in education. This episode is a part of a special series recorded at the ASU GSV Summit 2022 and is hosted by Pranav Kothari. In this conversation, we speak to Dr. Maria Langworthy. Dr. Langworthy is a principal program manager at Microsoft Education, where she previously served as the worldwide director of education research. A thought leader in this domain, she's a leading proponent of new pedagogies to enable deep learning in K-12 education. She publishes regularly on topics such as remote and hybrid learning, the use of data analytics to inform continuous improvement and developing skill-based education and employment. I think about deep learning and, and my colleague Michael Fullen um, really is something that's less focused on um, content knowledge, a little less focused on uh, mastery of kind of basic skills and more on the development, the intentional development of enduring human skills that can be transferred across different domains, subjects. Um, but the core of it is really developing the ability of a person to use those skills to solve real-world problems. So much of the edtech industry has replicated sort of traditional pedagogical practices, and I see an opportunity to build technology that can give nudges to everyone in the system and the supports that model more um, modern and deeper learning approaches. So one of the first things I did uh, at Microsoft was to start kind of an analytics program about using the data that exists in school systems, but also the data that's collected from digital learning activities and combine all that to create data feedback loops at every layer of an education system. It's not just students that benefit from continuous feedback. It's teachers, it's schools, it's entire education systems. There's lots of innovative teachers on the ground and innovative learners. It's the systems that need to innovate and they need that data to give them permission to innovate. In this conversation, Dr. Langworthy discusses the power of deep learning in affecting change in the real world and the need to prioritize student well-being to create an enabling environment for children to learn. She also discusses her thoughts on the future of learning and how data sourced through edtech software can be leveraged to bring in systemic reform. Good afternoon, uh, Maria. Welcome to EI Dialogues here at the ASU GSV Summit. Uh, such a pleasure to have you here. Thank you for inviting me. I, I, it's the questions that you've posed to me are really making me think through sort of my current thinking, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to engage and, and share, you know, the work in progress. 
And I think uh, to give uh, some context to our listeners, uh, could you explain uh, the term deep learning that you came up with? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of terms that get thrown around in education around, you know, started with 21st century skills and, you know, the four C's or the six C's. And I think about deep learning and, and my colleague, Michael Fullen, um, really is something that's less focused on um, content knowledge, a little less focused on uh, mastery of kind of basic skills, and more on the development, the intentional development of enduring human skills that can be transferred across different domains, subjects. Um, but the core of it is really developing the ability of a person to use those skills to solve real-world problems and a shift in education from one that is somewhat passive to one that is much more uh, active, uh, active role in solving problems uh, in the real world and of developing the disposition to define one's own goals for learning, for projects, um, for uh, one's purpose and figuring out and making sure that part of the learning opportunity is figuring out how to develop and achieve those goals yourself. And uh, so as, as core to the education endeavor. And how has your thinking evolved, you know, since you first wrote about this uh, through the pandemic years, uh, as you foresee the future? Is your definition more static or? <laughs> yeah, I, I, the, you know, the opportunity to do this interview actually prompted me to go back and look at the, the document uh, that is a few years old now. And I still think a lot of those elements are right around the shift to the, the focal point of learning being relationships and learning relationships both between students and their teachers and between students and other students and um, at the core really of it. However, I have developed uh, some, some other ideas as well. I think one of the main things is um, in working with more education systems around the world, uh, really, and certainly during the pandemic, a deeper recognition of the preconditions for learning um, and the need to really think about uh, student access to learning opportunities, um, which were so scarce in, during the pandemic, and uh, their level of engagement and their well-being, really. I think well-being has become a focus for all of us in so many ways, and um, that needs to be really incorporated in thinking about, you know, readiness to learn. And I think students more and more, you know, they, we have to intentionally develop a sense of belonging um, in our classrooms, um, between learners, uh, to enable that kind of deeper learning to take place. Ironically, if you can design a deeper learning type of project, it often leads to that sense of belonging. But uh, th there needs to be especially more measures of these kinds of things and, and consideration of the joining up of kind of well-being with deeper learning approaches, I think. Um, I've also sorry, thought more about um, um, assessment and the future of assessment. And especially during the pandemic, um, as more and more learning shifted to digital learning, remote learning, hybrid learning, it offers us a tremendous opportunity to really transform how we assess learning. There's Because of the digital signals that can be uh, captured during the learning experience in a, in a 
you know, digital platform, um, you can do assessment, informative assessment in, in real time, not based on a separate assessment necessarily, but based on the actual work students are doing in the moment. So it's almost, I think there's potential for kind of continuous formative assessment um, based on digital patterns, uh, augmented with you know other types of projects, etc. But I think uh, it offers us a, a real opportunity to to really drive towards that authentic assessment that we've been aiming at for a long time. Yeah, I think uh, we have a learning software called MindSpark, which is you know constantly asking students questions. We are sort of understanding their knowledge state, their inputs, uh, how much time they're taking to give an answer. Uh, depending on what answer they give, what could be the underlying misconception. And, you know, this point around constant formative assessments is helpful because, you know, at all points, you know, what is the child's current knowledge state and, you know, how can they learn forward from there? Um, so I very resonate uh, with those principles. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think, you, you know, that's personalization and adaptive learning. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, there's obviously, there's been so many studies that showed that kind of student centricity and using data and AI to enable that has such uh, impact. Um, but I also think one of the future directions is to apply those same type of approaches to well-being factors, not just pure academics, but even to engagement factors, um, and really assess across the spectrum of the learner's experience and the teacher's experience, what type of supports do they need at what moment, and I think that has real potential as well um, moving forward. And how do we do this well-being uh, with technology? How do we do this when children at home, not in school, uh, what should happen in school, what should happen after school, uh, and what, I mean, while we have great human beings as teachers, um, they may or may not be wired to be able to sort of do this well-being. So, you know, what kind of people do we need? How should they be trained? How can technology support them? Uh, I Great questions, and so so relevant and I think we're only at the very beginning of understanding um, how new pieces can be put together Um, I think um, there's a large opportunity for sort of and I've heard a lot of stories here at this conference about you know how do we scale education uh, in this remote and hybrid learning uh, environment and I think, uh, and I've had, you know, just last week, a district superintendent in the United States asked if we could use analytics to identify which courses, which subjects would be taught most effectively in a remote um, context versus which subjects needed to be really face-to-face. And um, I think we are going to need to do a lot of research, but this is where data and AI can really come into play. And I'm seeing new models emerging. Another story I saw yesterday, a professor has built a kind of a virtual classroom that has 200 students from 14 different universities around the world coming in to that classroom, sits on Microsoft Teams, 
and um, they do a lot of uh, sort of pre-assessment about students' dispositions and ideas about the subject matter, and then they very intentionally group the students into smaller cohorts of five to six students who collaborate together. And these are students across many different countries, um, and they have you know short assignments and then long assignments that they're working on with different groups. But it really, I thought it was brilliant in that it really leverages the potential to make learning collaborative and social while at the same time having large scale. And um, I think there's a model that could emerge where you have a master teacher who's one of those edutainers who's absolutely brilliant and engaging students in the content. And that professor or teacher can use a lot of technology tools as part of that presentation and engagement and capture a lot of data about the students to personalize what's recommended to each individual students. But that combined with smaller cohort groups of students and tutors and advisors working with small groups of 10 to 20 students. And in many cases, those could be peer tutors, right? Um, especially with if you have continuous formative assessment, you'll be able to see okay, which students are getting the material or getting the skill that could be good tutors to other students in a cohort, right? So it'll be much more of a mixed model, I think, and, and team-based learning, um, uh, which is great because it's very much the way it works in the world of work, right? You don't do any project uh, by yourself. You do it with a group of people with lots of feedback and negotiation, and uh, uh, it's not one product, it's everyone's product. Yeah, thanks. I think, um, so, Maria, we work in a lot of developing countries uh, like India, where, uh, you know, half of grade five students can't do um, basic math or are able to do foundational literacy numeracy. Um, You've worked at uh, BMGF before. You have some experience of sort of how large-scale education reform can improve. Now, how do we think about deep learning, you know, some of uh, the points that you talked about vis-a-vis, let's say, the scholastic aspects of, you know, really just being able to get the foundational literacy numeracy, right? Uh, Should they both happen together? Should one come after another? Is there a sequence? Is there a parallel processing on this? Yeah, yeah. I I think it's a great question, and I've been asked it before, and I don't think there's a sequence necessarily. Um, There are fantastic new tools emerging for those foundational literacies that embed adaptive learning, that use voice recognition. There's a new product from Microsoft called Reading Progress that's embedded within Microsoft Teams as a free thing that can help with reading progress, you know, and it that can be used exponentially and it's in hundreds of languages, right? Um, at the same time, though, can you do deep learning at the same time that uh, uh, students are developing those foundational skills? And I think absolutely yes. Uh, you know, a lot of deep learning is about uh, is about real world problem solving and about shifting the ownership of who's driving the learning to more to the students. And that has, you know, if a if a teacher is designing a learning activity that challenges students to solve a problem in the real world, that can be a local community. It can be on a farm. And um, 
there's nothing that says that uh, students couldn't approach simple problems in their communities, their homes, um, at a very young age without necessarily having advanced skills. And it's the ask and the expectation you set as an educator to ask that question that shifts the whole modality of schools from one where it's focused around do what you're told and here are the instructions to one of go figure out what you can do, what's possible, and we believe that you are empowered to figure out your own path. We're going to be here to support you. But that very shift, it signals so many things in terms of expectations that I think um, would benefit all students combined with personalized, adaptive learning tools that uh, that also tell the student, I can go as fast as I want to go, and or I can push myself, I can set my own goals. So those things combined, I think, can absolutely work in um, developing countries. There is the issue of access to devices, right, outside of school in particular. And what we, what we saw during the pandemic was in many developing countries, students do have access to phones, they're mobile, they're, that are family-owned, and that that can be used intermittently by all members of the family to keep the learning going. We, um, we set up national programs in Senegal and many countries to keep kids and their teachers connected via Teams classrooms. And even in India, we saw um, the state of Gujarat uh, set up millions and millions and millions of accounts. And we had, I think, about six million users just in that state of Teams as a platform to keep the learning going. And it happened very quickly. Um, But I do think the issue of equity uh, is at great risk in those situations to ensure every student has some device, has internet access. And that's still something governments all around the world are struggling with, even in the United States, to ensure, um, because it, it becomes even more of an equity issue. Yeah, our experience of, you know, helping students to continue in their learning, even during the pandemic when schools were closed, uh, is similar. We found that students can get access to, let's say, half an hour of the smartphone that their parents own, um, maybe after they've come back from work or early in the morning. And one of the benefits of uh, the personalized learning is they can learn at any time uh, of their choice. We also found that, you know, while... Absolutely, we want each and every child to continue learning regardless of the smartphone ownership. Um, To get to 100%, at some point, you have to cross the first 20%, right? Even when we were building schools, it's not like we had 100% access to schooling from day one. That was a journey there. So I feel like today we're at a place where even if 20% of the population has access to device, we must continue to provide them high-quality solutions. We must tinker. We must make improvements in the learning software so that as the nation then increases the ownership, as technology becomes more widely available, we have proven solutions. I think uh, if we simply don't get started because 80% don't have under the guise of uh, equality, that's also a disservice to the people who have it today. And it's a disservice to all of us because innovation wouldn't have, you know, hit the field data wouldn't have started coming in, version improvements wouldn't have happened. Um, so I think we just, we just, we have to start. That, I think that's absolutely right on multiple dimensions. Uh, in any innovative education product that we develop at Microsoft, we find the schools, the teachers, um, the universities that are what we call early adopters, who are ready and eager for the next innovation. 
And we co-developed the product and its implementation with those early adopters so that we can learn how to, what we need to do to refine the product and solution, um, how we structure it, how we roll it out in a way that, that it achieves its intended pedagogical goal, right? And so you need the, and in, in every case almost, you have to identify those people, teachers most often, who really believe in the, in the solution that you're trying to develop, who become your champions for it and know how to use it and become, you know, champions for the product or the solution. Because no one's going to convince their peers more than the person in the, in those shoes, and so um, it, you have to have you know those early stage rollouts just to build the capacity within an education system and refine the approaches and continuously learn as it rolls out. Um, because otherwise, you can put a lot of technology out there; it won't get used, or it won't be used effectively. Right? Yeah. What are some of these technologies that you are working on right now? You know, what are the gaps uh, in uh, uh, edtech uh, that you see today that you are filling? Um, how does all of this fit into your vision for a classroom of the future? Um, we'd yeah. love to hear what's cutting edge. Yeah, so so it's really the reason why I went back to Microsoft to work uh, is because so much of the ed tech industry has replicated sort of traditional pedagogical practices. And I see an opportunity to build technology that can give nudges to everyone in the system and the supports that model more... Um, modern and deeper learning approaches. So one of the first things I did uh, at Microsoft was to start kind of an analytics program about using the data that exists in school systems, but also the data that's collected from digital learning activities and combine all that to create data feedback loops at every layer of an education system. It's not just students that benefit from continuous feedback. It's teachers, it's schools, it's entire education systems. So right now, um, I'm leading a program called Open Education Analytics that is about helping education sector and systems leverage modern data and AI tools effectively to leverage all that data that they have um, and be able to do it ethically and responsibly using, you know, how to develop AI models that respect student privacy, that are secure. And it's a community of practice among large education, state departments of education, ministries of education, large cities that are working together to build the capacity to use these tools in an education context and to build use cases for it that they share. And it's an open source project so that they can share it with each other. So that's one of the things I'm really excited about because it opens up all kinds of opportunities for us to understand in much more real time how progress is being made. Um, and, you know, there's lots of innovative teachers on the ground and innovative learners. It's the systems that need to innovate, and they need that data to give them permission to innovate in a lot of cases. So that's one of the things. Um, the other is um, uh, we started a couple of products. One is called Reflect uh, that is about social and emotional learning and helping students build greater emotional self-awareness throughout the learning process and giving teachers and schools visibility into that, um, which I think is, is crucial. Uh, and then 
Um, another one is around helping students make that um, education to career transition, and it's a partnership with LinkedIn to ensure schools and students can get access to labor market information about what skills they need to develop for particular types of jobs. Uh, that's a project called Career Coach. Now, the next question is where where do we need to go next, and where are we where do we still have gaps? I think there are plenty of areas. Foremost, probably um, being in in embedding collaboration tools and social learning in every aspect of the digital platforms that we build. Um, too often, um, I see teachers that have opportunities to have students collaborating and they don't do it. And um, we see you know, massive numbers of schools using Microsoft Teams for education and not letting their students chat, and uh, um, which if you go into the world of work and you're going into virtual meetings all day like I am, the chat function and everybody speaking and everybody participating is the normal operating procedure. You never have one speaker just presenting, presenting, presenting. There's And the more dialogue that's going on in chat, the more metacognition ignition is happening. So I think there it's not just building those into technology products, it's the recognition that that kind of dialogue is essential to the learning process and both teachers and students becoming comfortable with that practice. I think that is a huge opportunity. And the, you know, the, the reason they shut it down is because of fear of students using that chat inappropriately. That's a learning moment, right? If a student walks into, you know, in their career the first day and doesn't know how to engage in chat or digital dialogue appropriately, they're in trouble. They need to have practice at that at earlier ages. Yeah. What a fascinating thought that, you know, um, whatever we do in the workplace, how do we create uh, an environment uh, when they are still in school? Um, that prepares them, truly prepares them for the workplace as opposed to (laughs) the curriculum that we have now. Absolutely. And I think that's another area where we still need to see some products for education that are around project-based learning and project-based execution. And there, I I don't think necessarily that many new products products need to be developed. I think uh, we need to teach schools and teachers and education systems how tech is used in modern businesses, modern organizations, and the practices behind that. So especially by secondary school, students should be starting to use the same tools that are used in businesses, whether those are um, communication tools, you know, presentation tools, um, documents, collaboration platforms like Teams and others, um, data tools like Power BI. Uh, all of those things should start to be used at an earlier age. Right now, even in higher ed, the products that are used are often quite different from the products used in actual work. And we see many schools coming to us saying, um, wow, we didn't really realize that you know, Microsoft and Office are the dominant tools used in businesses. So we're going to start our students learning those at an earlier age so that they're prepared on day one. And um, I think that's that's a big area of uh, opportunity. Right. We are here at the ASU uh, GSV Summit. Uh, what has, you know, in the last two days uh, inspired you, surprised you? 
um, motivated you? Uh, what were your biggest insights and takeaways? There have been so many. It's hard to think back over the last 24 hours. Um, I think two that I'll call out. One was um, hearing a discussion with, I think his name's Michael Crow, uh, and another former um, uh, leader of uh, San Jose State University. And they were talking about the need to redesign higher education and um, that that it needs to be done from scratch, that, you know, higher ed, especially in places like the United States, are elitist institutions, and there's a competition to be more elite, and that's not serving the needs of learners or of society. And if I started to think, what if we flip the model? Higher education has, throughout history, been a filtering mechanism to essentially perpetuate the elite. And, you know, there's been all kinds of efforts over the last 50 years to broaden the pipe and have more. And, but it's always with the idea of kind of competitiveness at its core, right? And producing more competitive students, having more competitive admissions, still with that, in that function of higher ed, you have to ask, is that really serving people? And is it really serving society? And if you take a, you know, a product development approach, we always design for the problem that people are trying to solve. And I'm not sure that that goal of higher ed as, you know, a competitive filtering system is really what's needed by our societies today. What if higher ed put as its founding core purpose something like solving world problems, you know, core problems? and designed everything in the education system around that. I think that could be really transformative in the way, you know, taking away that competitive angle to it and saying, no, our goal is really to ensure we're helping solve these problems and that students' education becomes about understanding how to solve those problems. It's not knowledge transfer as much as it is developing skills for creative collaborative problem solving um that focus i think would be so that was one of the ideas that came out the other i think key thing that triggered for me was at a dinner conversation where we were talking about um why can't we get more support and optimism for educational investments from from government, from public will. Has anybody ever run for president anywhere on an education platform? And possibly in Finland, possibly in Singapore. Um, I don't know if anyone's ever run on that pillar in India, but certainly not in the United States. Or if it was, it was 100 years ago. And I think part of that is that the narrative around education, and we perpetuate it as, you know, education system influencers, is often one of um, pessimism or negativity around there's still so many equity gaps, which there are. But um, if we're going to change the political narrative around education, we need to talk about the great things that are happening and the opportunities and the aspirations and show example after example after example of breakthroughs that are happening. They are happening all over the place. There's universities like ASU that are, you know, blowing the roof off what can happen in education. And um, I think that kind of 
reframing of how we talk about education, still with goals of education, uh, sorry, of equity and um, preparing everyone with an opportunity to truly succeed, but talking about it with, uh, you know, you know, the tech industry has made uh, huge gains economically by having this continuous um, drum beat of optimism, and sometimes it's a little bit foolish, I think, but but it still builds an excitement around what is possible. And uh, I wonder if we can start to change the dialogue a little bit in education to talk less about the problems and barriers and more about the opportunities, these things that we need to celebrate, and really starting with our aspirations. Yeah, that's a good point. I think, you know, inherently parents do care deeply about their child's well-being in the future. And education is one of those um, tools that help you jump orbits, which allows you to, you know, do things that are dramatically more than what your parents did or, uh, you know, people in your neighborhood did. Um, so I think technology is one efficient way to sort of get to more and more people to be able to jump uh, those orbits. One of the things that I've seen um, happening through the pandemic, a couple of trends. Um, one is that there's been such clarity around, emerge around the social dimensions of schooling and how both the negative and the positive sides of that. And there's been you know, so much talked about how kids have not been able to socially develop when they're isolated. And that's true. But I've also, I think the story has been undertold about students who've thrived without the social distraction in class. I've had um, multiple young men tell me that they're doing so much better academically um, through remote learning than they were physically, they were doing physically in school. And a lot of that had to do with, you know, peer interactions and, and peer pressure sometimes not to engage. And I, I've seen some research that shows something like 30% of American families do not want to have their kids go back to school full time. And I think it has to do with this. And it's not, you know, it's a recognition that different kids are different, right? Some kids do really well in a remote learning kind of context, or at least partially. Other kids don't. And they need that class expectation that's very real and immediate and physical. So I think that is um, something that we're going to need to study a lot more to find out, you know, personalization at the modality level of learning, right? Um, so I think that's one key thing. I think also, and it's quite obvious, um, tut <clears throat> tutoring has definitely taken off and um, the potential for that. <laughs> and I think the cost of that, given the opportunities for remote learning, remote tutoring, I think there's a lot more opportunity for peer tutoring systems being built into education. Uh, I think there's just tremendous potential there and especially in developing countries. Uh, there's been projects in places like Mexico, and, you know, it goes back to Paulo Freire and everyone teaching each other. Um, but I think, I think we'll see more of that as well. Yeah. No, I think, um, you know, one other benefit that I see of peer tutoring is that uh, it's far more relatable for the child to be able to talk to peers. You know, they, they know the pop culture, they know the references to music uh, and arts and, and what's the latest. And that increases engagement because, you know, I'm talking to someone who's my age, my generation, as opposed to someone who's obviously very accomplished, very intelligent, but is also of a different generation and is not able to resonate with me on my likes and dislikes. 
um, and, and, and also with peer tutoring, I think the cost of tutoring could be substantially lower than that of an expert tutoring. And I think for the elements related to the expert tutoring, like giving you feedback, practice, I think can be delegated to technology, where technology can you know, help give some of the guidance um, through interactive software. Um, so in MindSpark, we find that students are doing about five to 6,000 questions per year uh, compared to you know, a fraction of that uh, with a regular tutor or a teacher. Um, that you know, teachers can assign homework and it all gets graded and all the teacher needs to know is you know, what were the key insights, what were the pedagogic gaps that they need to remediate in the classroom, right? So I think uh, this piece around, you know, how technology can amplify what the teacher's intent is, which is that each and every child does well, along with sort of increasing engagement of the child to be able to talk to peers, to be able to do that, uh, uh, could, could really uh, drive up uh, some of these learning outcomes. I think you're right on target with all of that. And um, I like very much what you said about peer tutors bring down the intimidation factor, right? We know that students don't are not able to deeply engage in their without that self-confidence and a sense of belonging. And, you know, um, a lot of education historically or traditionally has been about the sage on the stage and, you know, the expert scholar conveying knowledge. And that's intimidating. And uh, so that um, peer tutoring, uh, you know, a person just one or two stages beyond you at the zone of proximal development can really help you, you understand that, you know, it's, it's relatable, it's in my realm, and, and again, reinforce that idea that, oh, I can get there too, if they can figure it out, I can figure it out, and, um, and, and make the whole thing just so much less intimidating. I think you're right. And, I, and we're seeing the same thing with all of our products, is that if you can make sort of those, those practices of um, skills... Um, somewhat gamified or um, less intimidating not in assessment context students will do them over and over and over again because they see how much they progress we this reading progress application that we've just launched um, it was designed really to help teachers um, assess the reading comprehension and vocabulary um, of students as and they did that traditionally through having the student read aloud and they would mark how many words they got wrong and things like that that can all be done through technology today and and what we're seeing is students get it and they'll start to repeat the same passages or push for new passages more and more and more because it gives them instant feedback and it's and then they choose which version of that they want to submit to the teacher and it's it's having dramatic um, improvements you know and and so this combination of things I think where it's both the technology that's very adaptive as well as uh, providing the insights to educators about what are the inflection points or the barriers that students are meeting as they as they move forward and those barriers or inflection points may not be academic they may be around well-being they may be about access you know did, did you know did the did somebody's yeah. little brother steal the phone yes. <laughs> you know? yes. things like that so um, no i think those are important things because if they are not adequately resolved if emotions are not processed if you know people don't students don't feel they are heard it may come in the way of learning and eventually where we want them to go so very important right right one last thing i do want to say i've been reading the work of mariana mazzucato an economist um around 
uh, kind of the role of the public sector and what's happened to it over the last years and what could happen and how um, much more we need to invest in the core capabilities of the public sector. And I think that has a lot of overlap with education and social impact and the way that we can design um, education systems to do more real-world problem-solving, right? And that could be at the higher education level where, you know, universities get engaged. has to do with public-private partnerships. I think companies like Microsoft um, are at the cutting edge and, and... and need to do more to co-develop solutions with the education sector. Like we're doing with this open education analytics, it's very much a partnership between you know, Microsoft and that network of education systems working with us to learn how to use analytics and AI in really effective ways that will have an impact. And um, so I think, I think these kind of rigid barriers we've had in the past about how we collaborate It was actually quite shocking uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, all of these education systems and and organizations like UNESCO that had traditionally kept a company like Microsoft somewhat at arm's length um, and wanted to partner, but were still a little hesitant. That suddenly shifted almost overnight to, you know, we had biweekly calls with UNESCO planning on how to help education systems set up remote learning for their entire countries. Um, We worked with education systems in ways, and we learned from them and had continuous dialogue to say, okay, what supports do you need to roll this out? We often say it was 10 years um, innovation and advancement in about 10 weeks, you know, and uh, that kind of thing I think really has fundamentally changed how we collaborate as a sector. And the beautiful thing about education that I, I keep saying is it's not like business enterprises that are trying to do digital transformation uh, to compete. Um, in education, we're trying to all do digital transformation to accelerate learning for all students. And so we can collaborate with each other. I think there's a huge opportunity to leapfrog, certainly in our er- around data and analytics in so many areas, if education systems, and I mean ministries of education, state departments of education, as well as schools and teachers, if we really start to collaborate meaningfully on solutions and share in an open and open sourced way, uh, we can really start to make some progress. Yeah, uh, I think that's uh, we have to take advantage of this shortening of a decade into 10 weeks of people's attitude towards the right form of technology in education and make the most of this moment. Uh, it was so great talking to you, Maria. Thank you so much for taking out the time and uh, for everything that you are doing uh, to advance the field of uh, education uh, through the right form of technology that's enabling students, um, teachers, uh, all your work on uh, deep learning. Um, it was a pleasure and, and thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. It's a, it's a privilege to get to speak in forums like this and we're all in this together, right? So we all have to collaborate. So thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this conversation, subscribe to EI Dialogues so you don't miss upcoming episodes. On our YouTube channel, you can view thematic videos on the role of technology in education, collaborating with governments, scaling interventions, and much more. Also visit our earlier conversation with Abhijit Singh on the gap between evidence and policy making in education. <laughs>